Welcome back to episode 70 of Sporting Max. This episode is brought to you by The Missing Link, connecting you and your business with the biggest stars in the world through events and experiences. Please welcome number 70. He's a two-time Olympian in 08 at the Beijing Olympics and in 2012 at the London Olympics. And he's also an NBL legend playing for the Perth Wildcats, the Cairns Taipans and the Sydney Kings. He's had a fantastic basketball career and it was an honour to chat with him, Mark Worthington. Welcome back everyone to another episode of Sporting Max. But today we are joined by two-time Olympian, NBL champion. He's a father of two uh, young boys who could potentially be following in his footsteps in the NBL, if not uh, the AFL. Mark Worthington, Worthington, it's fantastic and an honour to have you on. How are you going at the moment? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, life is good in WA. I, I don't. I haven't been in lockdown as long as other people, which is good. And um, yeah, now uh, now that I've moved on to the next chapter of my life, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's been uh, pretty exciting. So, do you still have a sort of current involvement in the basketball community, like from like your personal standpoint of view? Uh, I've been coaching NBL one for the last two years, uh, but I'm no longer coaching there. And um, now I've sort of stepped into a new role uh, with an NBA team as wow. one of the, the lead scouts in Australia, which is good. I get to watch the NBL, which I was already yeah. doing. And now, <laughs> uh, now through the perspective of uh, the NBA lens of, uh, you know, seeing what's out there, whether that be the, the Next Stars program or, you know, we look at people like Deshaun Tate and Tory Craig who have uh, played over here as imports and then gone mm-hmm. in and been able to be great rotation guides for their teams. Um, thanks for coming on, uh, Mark. It's greatly appreciated. Um, I want to start off with getting into your childhood and what growing up was like for you in Devonport in Tasmania. <laughs> Not from Devonport. That's a good start. No, from Bunbury, Western well, Australia. I've checked about five websites and Devonport, Tassie had said, oh, far out. No, uh, no, WA boy. So Bunbury boy. Um, yeah, it, it was interesting, obviously, being a country kid and, and sort of going around where basketball wasn't really big back then. Mm-hmm. And obviously, being a country kid meant my parents had to drive a lot up to Perth, like two hours two hours up to Perth just to get me to a training session or, you know, the games on the weekends because majority of the time we played up in Perth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I I did that quite a bit as a as a kid with a lot of time spent in the car, which was, you know, uh, it's what had to happen, what I need to do growing up. So that was good. Uh, my parents both heavily involved in basketball. My dad uh, was a really good basketball player as a junior and, um, my mum, uh, she would always admit that she wasn't the most talented basketball player, but she was very scrappy. Yeah. And <laughs> as, as, as long as I could remember, I'd always be in the car going to mum or dad's training sessions and mm-hmm. uh, wanting to play myself. And then, yeah, slowly got into it and, and went to that, went from there. So then how did you, what was your sort of path um, to being a Cairns Taipans development player, you know, from the junior level up? Uh, well, uh, first year of state under 16s, I didn't make the WA country team, wow. which probably shows how bad I was at that stage. Because if you didn't make WA country, you are pretty horrendous because mm-hmm. we're typically on the lower end of the scale 
uh, basketball wise, uh, made my second year of under 16s, made both year under 18s, which is great. And then I couldn't even get a gig in under 20s for wow. the WA team. Um, and I got a, uh, I was going to go to Metro State, uh, <laughs> which has obviously produced quite a few handy players in the NBL now. Uh, and I got a phone call uh, asking to go up and train with hands as a good sort of lead up to what I was about to do with college. And <laughs> I live with uh, John Dorge, uh, who is an NBL legend and yeah. uh, uh, really fortunate that he opened up the doors to his house and I was able to live with him. Uh, and but then the training was really exciting because one day I was guarding an Aranger hair in the point guard role, and the next day mm -hmm. I'd guard Anthony Stewart, who was their, <laughs> their shooting guard, and the following day I'd guard Ben Knight, who was their power forward, who was playing really good minutes at that time. Mm -hmm. And so I got uh, thrown into the deep end as a 17 year old, and sort of these are the multiple positions that you have to sort of be able to guard, and uh, mm -hmm. I sort of really enjoyed that sort of training uh, because every day was different. Um, so what was that like to live with John Dorge? He's a grumpy man. Nah, Dorgie, <laughs> Dorgie, Dorgie was really good. And obviously he'd made the jump from playing into the coaching role, <laughs> spent time in New Zealand with the Breakers. And then uh, Guy Malloy had asked him up to, to Cairns. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and John was really good. And he was tough on me. He also gave me the freedom. Um, like that every 17 year old kid want but he yeah. wasn't shy to pull me in and clip me over the years uh, <laughs> when i needed it and um yeah, i look back you know those six months it was a, a fun and exciting six months for me like leaving my family moving to the other side of australia couldn't mm -hmm. get further apart from them uh and that sort of started the snowball effect of me you know not returning to western australia until 20 years later so you mentioned going to college in the US, um, to the Metropolitan State um, College of Denver. How did that opportunity uh, sort of present itself for you? Yeah. Uh, so the coach at that time was Mike Dunlap, who was a former Adelaide 36ers coach. Mm -hmm. uh, and he had a good pipeline of Australians that had gone through. And uh, it was guys called Lee Barlow um, and uh, Kane Oakley and Shane Armet. They were already there before I got there. And um, once I got there, there was people, Luke Kendall and Daniel George were already there, which was great um, that I had people that I could talk to, count on, rely on. Uh, Luke Kendall still one of my best and closest mates to this day. Um, but then we also saw a whole emergence of Australians coming through uh, after that, uh, where it was Andrew Harms, it was Drew Williamson, uh, uh, once I left Jesse Wagstaff, which led into Mitch McCarron and Nick Kay and all that, Sunday Debt. I mean, we we had quite the we were the other pipeline that St. Mary's wasn't, I guess, at that mm -hmm. stage. Um, uh, Dunlap had been told by a couple of people, you know, that I was a versatile sort of player. I was a bit of a country bumpkin, didn't know <laughs> my head from my ass and um I'd uh, went there, uh, I guess, really sheltered and not really knowing what I was stepping into. And then it was a gradual build over the four years from winning a national championship my freshman year, but not playing a whole lot to being uh, Division Two Player of the Year my final year and getting to play a whole bunch. Um, it was quite the, the roller coaster of a ride for those four years. But 
four years that I wouldn't have changed for anything in the world. So what was your college experience sort of like for you um, if you put aside basketball? Yeah, it's tough. Uh, you sort of go there for basketball, but then education gets in the way. And then at the same time, you're, you're a young kid and yeah. <laughs> you, want, you want to have fun. And um, I guess I was lucky that I had really good mates like mm. Luke Kendall around where we could sort of get that balance. We, I mean, we practiced really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And everyone knew that we were probably in one of the tougher programs to try and get through. But at the same time, um, we still enjoyed ourselves. And um, you look back on those four years, like we went, Metro State isn't a massive campus. It's sort of known for having people that had either dropped out of school and started a family or life work got in the way and then they'd come back and go to college. Um, and so we didn't have a massive following as far as supporters or anything like that, but we, we didn't play for that. We played for winning. We played for uh, growing from boys into men. Um, and uh, it was a really unique experience that we were very fortunate to have. You mentioned playing under former Adelaide 36's head coach, Mike Dunlap. What was that like to, you know, you've got someone who's coached in the NBL and knows um, I guess you guys style a play from down under in the States. Yeah, he's a, he was a very tough man. Um, and when we had lost focus of why we were there, because other things, you know, inevitably <laughs> get in the way, he would always push us to continue to be a professional. And so the stuff that he taught us was, you know, once we get out of college, we don't have people there holding <laughs> your hand like you either get a contract or you don't get a contract it's all based on the work that you do. And so he gave us this work ethic that we had to continually just strive and put in the extra work. And, you know, if your shot wasn't falling, it wasn't because uh, you knew it would turn around because you put in the extra hours. And um, I guess when you're a young professional, a lot of people get tagged with, oh, He's a young pro and so his highs are very high, but his lows are very low. And what we tried to establish was what does what our worst game look like and how do we still help and contribute to the team? And I guess Dunlap gave us that, um, that sort of inkling of, you know, all right, maybe your shot's not dropping, but what do you do to impact the game? And I think if you look back on the careers of myself um, and Luke Kendall, you can probably say, all right, Yes, we were known as scoring threats, but we impacted the game in many other ways outside of scoring. Um, now, after returning home and playing for, for the Sydney Kings uh, once again in the NBL, you won the Rookie of the Year uh, award. You know, have you sort of earned your spot um, in that Kings team? And what was it like to be recognised as, you know, the best Rookie of the Year? Um, it was tough, though, coming off three championships in a row and, and then you get slotted in as a starter to that group and I, um, it, it, was, it was a tough three years to tell you the truth. We had, you know, living in Sydney on very minimal money to start off your career, uh, leading into the firepower uh, debacle where, you know, we weren't getting paid and we were the best team uh, going around. We had the best record uh, and for the majority, well, for all of us, we weren't getting paid during that third season. It was tough. Uh, and Gorgian was the, the master at 
motivating us to sort of throw it in their face. Um, but it, it was it was tough those three years to say the least. Um, I think that we had some really good people in the organisation um, that we wanted to continue to show up and go to work for. Um, I know myself personally, it was my teammates that, you know, I wanted to continue for us to win and do well. If there was a slither of hope that people, you know, that had home loans and kids to feed at that stage that, you know, they didn't know when the next paycheck was coming through. Um, so at the end of the day, uh, Awards are nice, but it was nothing I really played for at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I think I was very fortunate that I was around a really good bunch of guys. You know, you look in the first couple of years, I had CJ Bruton, I had Jason Smith, mm -hmm. uh, and a whole bunch of names and faces that were just really good pros, pro people. Um, mm -hmm. Played with some really good imports as well. Uh, fell short twice in three years at grand finals, but... Um, learned a lot from those days of playing at the Sydney Kings. So with the Sydney Kings in those tough three years, how do you think um, the presence of guys like CJ Bruton, Jason Smith, like you mentioned, had an impact on you and helped you to become a better player? Yeah, look, CJ was obviously the best point guard in the Australian point guard in the league at that stage. And um, CJ also took me underneath his wing and spent extra time with me and, looked after me a fair bit uh, and for that I've always been grateful for. Um, he would always be really positive in the way that he spoke to me about my game and how I could help myself further. Jason uh, was a fantastic leader and uh, I learned a lot from Jason. When it was my turn to become captain of uh, clubs further on down the track, I was constantly still talking to Jason on how to deal with things because his leadership that he brought to the table was outstanding and uh, the best, you know, probably the best leader that I'd played under uh, in my time of playing just because he not only demanded respect but he earned our respect and how he went about his business and how he did things. And um, when you got someone like that, you, you're willing to do whatever it takes to to jump through the fire just to, to try and help him out in any way possible. And then in, in return, he helped me become a better leader when it was my turn to lead a couple of clubs later on down the track. I've represented Australia um, at the FIBA World Cups and Olympics, um, particularly the 2008 Beijing Olympics and the 2012 uh, London Olympics. What were these experience Olympic experiences like for you um, and, you know, playing against guys like Kobe Bryant and LeBron James, just to name a few, um, can you talk to us about that American Dream Team in that 2008 Olympics? Yeah, they were pretty um, They were pretty lucky to share a court with myself and Chris Hansen <laughs> and yeah. a few other guys. Um, I, I always say this to anyone that asks me about the Olympics and, you know, my experience. Um, I think I was very, well, first off, Anytime I got to play for my country, I, I considered it the biggest honour you could possibly get. And I, I loved every second that I was able to put on the green and gold, always wore number 11, which was uh, a sort of, that was my parents' numbers growing up. They both wore 11 and something that I was really proud to wear. Um, I never wore 11 in the NBL 
or in any of my stints overseas. I just wore my Australian number as number 11 because of my parents. Um, but I was fortunate to go to two Olympics uh, because you get to the first Olympics and your head just spins. Like you're seeing people that you've watched previously, you're sharing yeah. tables at, at the, the dining lounge with them. And um, it, was a, it was just a surreal experience, that first one. And you get to soak it all in and uh, you see a lot of athletes sort of lose their head and lose their mind because they get there and they sort of drop the ball because they forget mm-hmm. why they're there. And while I did well at Beijing, I felt a lot more comfortable in London and maybe my role wasn't as large in London, but um, I felt more comfortable in myself and knowing the reason I was there and all that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I look back on those memories as, wow, what an unbelievable experience. Uh, it's something, it's funny, as a kid, I was a half-decent footballer as well, and when it became time to choose between football and basketball, uh, and I made my choice of basketball, people said, well, why do you want to play basketball over football? And I said, well, I can go to the Olympics in basketball, I can't go mm-hmm. to the Olympics in football. <laughs> I guess Olympics was always my ultimate goal, and then to be able to do that not once but twice, I think I look back on it and I go, I how cocky of me to make that comment of why choosing basketball over football um, and be how fortunate am I to be able to represent my country twice at the Mm -hmm. Olympics, play against uh, some incredible teams um, and got so many good stories that, you know, now my kids get to to share those stories of they know that their dad got to play against LeBron and Kobe and the whole list of names, which is pretty cool. Um, so I also like to play alongside someone on the boomers like Paddy Mills. Yeah, incredible. And I think we've just seen Paddy just get better with age. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paddy's gotten better. Joe's gotten better. Um, yeah. I guess that watching them win a bronze medal was the absolute ultimate. I don't think I've cried before at a sporting event, but that one made me cry. Wow. Um, just was really happy for those guys. and. For Patty and Joe in particular, and, and throw Delhi in the mix in there as well, that they have um, been through it all. They've seen it. Uh, they came in as really young guys into the program. Um, you know, when there was Matt Nielsen and Sam mm-hmm. McKinnon and Glenn Savile and myself, uh, I'm a little bit younger than those three, just <laughs> yeah. and, and, and Anstey and all that. Um, but they, they got to see it and then you know, the the uh, trademarks that were put in place have made them better mm-hmm. as time has gone on. And we just saw, everyone talks about the boomers culture. I mean, the boomers culture is, is I think it's the best it's ever been. And the proof yeah. is in the pudding that they've won the bronze medal now. And I'm excited because it's not that far away in three years time and they get another crack at it. And I think they can go a step further. Um, so what does it mean to you to be a part of Australian boomers history? Um, I guess I can sit back now and say it's pretty cool that I got to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how much of an impact I had in those years. Um, all I can tell you is that I wore my heart on my sleeve every time that I played and it didn't matter if it was a exhibition match uh, against anyone that no one really cared about it <laughs> in the morning back in Australia. Um, 
it was still the ultimate compliment, the ultimate highlight for me. Um, whether it was my first game or my last game that I got to play for Australia, I always felt like it was the biggest honour that I could achieve and I was super proud of uh, what I was able to do over those 10 years of representing our country and um, I wouldn't trade it for trade it for the world. Um, so now after your time, um, your sort of three years with the Sydney Kings, you signed with the South Dragons after the 2008-2009 season. Um, what sort of made you want to sign with the Dragons, I guess? Um, well, after everything that happened with the Kings and Firepower, and I knew, Rick, I, I didn't know that the Kings were going to fold at that stage, but I knew mm-hmm. that I had to get out of Sydney. And I had... Uh, I had uh, talked with uh, Mark Cowan and Rocky Jaminda, who were the owners of the Dragons. Um, mm-hmm. Then they signed Gorge as the cap, uh, as the coach. Um, so there was already synergy there with Gorge uh, over the past three years, and I knew he could get the basketball best basketball out of me at that stage. And um, I was still in a very much. A, I've always I just wanted to win a championship. That's all I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And, when you go to a club that I think they were four and 20 the year before, uh, bottom of the ladder, but they brought Gorge in and they wanted to bring myself in. I knew that they'd got rid of a bunch of players and I had an inkling of who they wanted to get or uh, going forward. And I thought it was just a fantastic chance for the second club in Melbourne to go up against the Melbourne Tigers who had won two out of the last three championships and, I just saw it as a real opportunity to um, apply my trade in Melbourne. Um, it was between the Dragons and uh, the Wildcats at that stage, and um, the Wildcats weren't doing too well. I think they'd finished seventh or eighth um, and just scraped into the finals at that stage, and um, I didn't see a definitive way forward immediately with that group. Um, I did with the Dragons um, and, you know, we're lucky enough to go on and win a championship that year, but then to fold straight after the championship, yeah. knowing the roster that we had and we felt like that was a dynasty waiting to happen. Uh, mm-hmm. and it, just, it just didn't happen uh, mainly because of politics at that stage. So what was your championship experience like for you? And then, you know, when you heard the news um, that you had to fold pretty much straight after? Um, look, I, I, I loved it. Uh, that was a fantastic year. If you just sort of look at our roster to understand, like having Micah Vakona beside me, um, having Adam Gibson, Joe Ingalls, Dante Smith, Tremel mm-hmm. Darden, Matty Burston, Nick Horvath, Nathan Herbert, Reese Carter. Like, yeah. we were just, we were just, we loved each other's company we loved Mm -hmm. training hard against each other we loved pushing the boundaries but then we also really enjoyed our time um off the court with each other we thought it was it was probably something that we you know i never got to replicate again as far as a group and then you get the news that i remember we'd had a training session i was driving back home and i was going over the westgate bridge and i got a phone call from the owner saying um I need you to call the rest of the group and come to the office straight away. And I knew straight away something wasn't right. 
uh, we got to the office and basically they said that we were folding as a as a club and um, I, guess it was, I guess it was a bit of a gut punch at that stage just because mm-hmm. we knew how good we had it as a group and we uh, we knew that we had a dynasty in the making especially after what had happened with the Sydney Kings a year before then to happen with the South Dragons a year later especially after winning a championship it just mm-hmm. felt like you know Things couldn't get any worse at that stage, but lo and behold, later down the track. <laughs> um, what was it like to play under a guy like Brian Gorgian? Yeah, he's a master motivator, very good X's and O's. He applies his trade so well. He works his ass off. Gorgian's not a guy that just rocks up and it works for him. He puts so much time and effort into scout, into video, to individuals knowing what, people like don't like how to push them to their limits without breaking them um having the tough conversations being able to pick people up uh there's a reason that he succeeded as the boomers coach is because he's that damn good um so what was it like to play with the young joe ingles i'm um, in that south in that south dragons team i lived with joe um as well and so I'd like to say that I taught him everything that he knows, but he was very, very good already and he knew he was good. Um, it's pretty cool to see him now and how far he's come along in his development as a human. Um, and I say that not that he was a bad human with us, but now the work that he's doing um, with autism awareness and all that it's just amazing what he's been able to do and the awareness that he's been able to create and um so what you want about joe as a basketball player the thing that i liked about joe the most was him as a person it always has been and um uh very fortunate uh to live with him for the year very grateful that I saw the start of what was an unbelievable career that's still ongoing and it's fantastic to see what he's doing in the NBA now. So after that season where the dragon uh, where the dragons folded, you signed with Crosstown Rivals of the Melbourne Tigers um, for the 09-2010 season. How did you find um, your experience um, with the Melbourne Tigers in the one season uh, which you were there? Um, it was difficult, obviously. I was hated by the Melbourne Tigers. Mm-hmm. Like I'd just beaten them for a grand final. I was the winning captain. Um, I was about to sign with Cairns uh, when the Dragons went down and it was actually a phone call from Chris Anstey that said, have you signed yet? And I said, I haven't. He said, well, don't do it. <laughs> uh, let, let's, let's have a conversation first. And I said, mm-hmm. all right. Um, and by this stage, Chris and I had become very close mates mm-hmm. through the Beijing experience. Um, we didn't always see eye to eye when we first started uh, playing against each other. And then through the boomers experience, we became very close mates. Um, I came into the Melbourne Tigers who had been uh, to four grand finals in, in four years. Um, they'd won two, they'd lost two. Um, Chris was gonna play his last season. Sam McKinnon was gonna play his last season. Um, we had a, import in Julius Hodge, who was interesting to say the least. Um, and uh, it just didn't click that year. On paper, we had a very, like, if you if you look on paper, you see Julius Hodge, you see Sam McKinnon, you see Chris Anstey, and you see myself, you're like, all right, well, this team can go, all right. Chris missed the first half of the season, 
with hip surgery and uh, was never fully right again. Sam McKinnon was coming off blood clots um, and he wasn't fully right. Uh, I had just had uh, my first son, Taz, um, and so a lot of sleepless nights. Um, and Julius Hodge hardly ever trained um, for all the peculiar injuries that he seemed to have had. Mm-hmm. So it just didn't click that year. Um, we had Al Westover as coach, uh, and I loved Al. Uh, and he tried to motivate us and tried to get us there. But at the end of the day, we were probably uh, a little bit too old, a little bit too grumpy. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we just didn't quite have all the pieces that we needed to, to make us a successful team at that stage. Um, I understand you've played overseas in Puerto Rico, Serbia and Germany. How do you find adjusting overseas and sometimes the language barriers? Germany was good because we won a championship in Germany and that was straight after the Dragons championship that I went over there and was able to win the Bundesliga championship with Bruce. Um, and so we had a really good team. We'd finished fifth in the regular season and we were able to knock off um, fourth place and then continue our way all the way to the, the championship. We won in game five against Frankfurt, which was awesome. Um, Serbia, I uh, was doing all right. And then I had to, I had torn everything in my shoulder and had to get a shoulder reconstruction. So I had to leave halfway in between. Um, and then Puerto Rico, I got fired from my first team because um, let's just put it, I wasn't the athlete that the owner wasn't looking for. And then mm-hmm. uh, I came home from the second team for the birth of my second child, Axel. Mm-hmm. I guess if you roll up all the international experience together, mm-hmm. um, you have to be really comfortable in your own skin um, mm-hmm. when you don't speak the language uh, of all these different countries. Um, if you're not playing too well, it's easily easy to get into your own mind and say mm-hmm. that they're talking about you. Um, when in the case, it's really the majority of the time they're not. Yeah. Um, and so as long as you're doing the work that you need to do and putting in the uh, the work at practice and then, in the, you know, showing all your heart in the game, you, you tend to be okay. But if you're not, it can be easily misconstrued as people talking crap about you behind your back mm-hmm. or in another language as it yeah. was. But um, that was never the case in my experience. And I, I really enjoyed uh, the experience of having to play overseas and in different countries um, meeting a whole bunch of different friends that I'm still friends with today. It's such a cool experience and very grateful that I was able to do that. So how did you earn the opportunity um, to get uh, to sign with the Gold Coast Blaze uh, in 2010? Um, uh, Joey Wright basically made it happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, I've, I've got a lot of time for Joey and he was uh, probably the probably the toughest coach I had. Wow. Um, but I say that in a good way. Like yeah. he was tough on his best player just as much as he was tough on the, the last guy on the on the roster. Mm-hmm. Um, so his consistency, he didn't let anything slide and, and that I appreciated. And sometimes it was frustrating and, you know, you have arguments with your coaches and stuff like that. And then you look at the bigger picture at the end of the day and you're like, well, why did he do it? And, 
uh, he had all the right intentions for myself. Mm -hmm. You know, the Blaze struggled in that first year. Second year, we're one game away from a grand final yeah. again. And, and that was, you know, sort of the way that your basketball journey goes. It's tough to make grand finals. It's extremely tough to win them. You sort of need a little bit of luck. And mm -hmm. luck wasn't on our side again in that year, the second year with the Blaze. But um, I enjoyed playing under Joey. I thought we had a really good Australian core there. Once mm -hmm. again, Gibbo, Chris Golding, myself, James Harvey, Tom Garlip, Steve Hoare. Uh, mm -hmm. We were really, really loaded and ready to go. And then once again, you get the phone call saying that the blaze was folding and you yeah. sort of throw your hands up at that stage and um, just surrender. So it is what it is at the end of the day. And um, yeah, I, um, I was pretty glad to get out of the Gold Coast at the end of those two years, that's for mm -hmm. sure. So what did you think when the Blaze folded? You know, you played for a couple of clubs now that have folded. Uh, it's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's no, there was no consistency, especially when you look at the league now and see how well off they are and yeah. what players are getting paid. Yeah. Um, definitely played in the wrong era. Mm -hmm. um, however, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, all these experiences give you something on the way, and while it feels like you um, feels like you sort of get shafted a little bit at the same time, um, I mean, it just sort of galvanizes you at the same time. And um, you know, like I said, by the end of it, I was pretty happy to get out of the Gold Coast and move on to the next adventure. So when you came back to the Melbourne Tigers in 2013. Then a year later, they sort of switched their name and rebranded as Melbourne United, sort of connect um, all those clubs who had folded in Melbourne over the years together. What did you think of that move um, by the owners? Did you notice a difference between the culture environment uh, between the Tigers and United? Uh, well, yeah, it was tough. Uh, I was obviously, as the captain of the club at that stage, I was... Mm -hmm thrust into the media to answer a lot of these questions and they were really smart in how they did it and while people didn't see it at the time uh, it was the right move to make when you're living in Melbourne uh, obviously in Melbourne Tigers Juniors is a huge association and yeah if you're a kid that plays for Sandringham Dandenong and all that how do you tell your kids oh you got to play against these juniors but you got to support <laughs> Melbourne Tigers in the NBL. Yeah. Like there, there's no connect there. And so by taking the Melbourne Tigers name away, while the history was there with the Tigers, the longevity of um, Melbourne going forward was to try and unite mm -hmm. um, all the associations under one. Now, obviously, the Phoenix had come in now yeah. to take their share of, um, of the market as well. but uh, I thought it was very intelligent at the time uh, for them to to rebrand and remarket them as United as much as it probably hurt mm -hmm. um, that smaller population of Melbourne Tigers supporters uh, growing up. So was there a difference in the group or environment at the club once they became Melbourne United? Uh, well, interesting time, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, I, when I was at the Melbourne Tigers, I had 
my close friend, uh, Chris Anstey, coaching me. We rebranded yeah. United. Anstey last one game before he's let go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Daryl McDonald takes over as head coach. Mm-hmm. And so um, I guess it, it was a changing of the guard at Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And I think years down the track, it's hard to put your finger on uh, why it all went down the way that it did, um, whether it was Chris being let go after one game, um, I got let go after being uh, club MVP. Um, and I just, I think that they just wanted to move in a different direction at that stage. And mm-hmm. um, Dean Demopoulos came in as coach and he wanted me to stick around as a player, but that wasn't to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was management's call at the end of the day. And look, it was just another step in the journey. Um, They've obviously become very successful under Dean Vickerman. Yeah. They've had staples in Chris Goulding there for a long time now, and <laughs> obviously David Barlow as well. And so um, they've done very well over the last couple of years and been very successful. And um, obviously they're still one of the powerhouse clubs of the, the competition right now. Now, I've recently had uh, Darren McDonald DMAC on the podcast. What would it like to, you know, play under him um, for a bit of time? Yeah, I think, I mean, like every coach, you sort of take bits and pieces that mm-hmm. you, you like. And um, I like talking to D-Mac. I could talk basketball all day to D-Mac. He was, he was great with that. And um, Obviously, I was his captain, so I was his guy. And mm-hmm. I think majority of the time, I tried to do it through my work ethic and showing our group the work that needed to be done, mm-hmm. shooting out and stuff like that but obviously as most people know I was pretty vocal as well yeah going and uh, strong in the media in my um, my beliefs what I, I thought and it's funny in hindsight now um, I wish I wasn't that I wish mm-hmm. I was probably more known for playing but you know when people talk about me they talk about that I was a hard-nosed competitor and I was outspoken and, um, you know, uh, looking back, I, I probably wish in a lot of ways I was different verbally um, back then than what I was. And, uh, but D- Mac was really good as far as, he was always in communication with me, always wanted to know what I thought or what I saw on the court because he'd been that point guard for so long that, <laughs> make reads on the fly and I guess coaches put certain trust in what players they talk to and what they feedback that they get back to make changes and I think D-Mac was that for me. Um, you then returned to the Cairns Taipans where your career all started um, in 2015. What was that like uh, to come back to the Taipans to you know finish off your career? Yeah, it was sort of full circle. Um, Naren Fern was pretty... You know, they were coming off a grand final appearance versus New Zealand and, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we tried to make things work. Um, that first year I got there, just sort of didn't click. Mm-hmm. Uh, fantastic group of guys, really appreciative of my time and obviously winding up in Cairns um, just wasn't to be. I think 
that last year of my career when I knew uh, I knew even in the preseason it was going to be my last year of playing. Mm-hmm. Then to have the shoulder injury um, midway through the season, I didn't train for. I'd want to say from halfway through in the season, I never had another training session with the oh. group. Um, I played with everything torn in my shooting shoulder. I was basically having two injections a game mm-hmm. uh, and multiple, um, multiple, multiple tablets just to get through the season, uh, knowing that it was going to be the last time. So if I'd ruined everything, then there was nothing. I, I knew what it was at that stage. Mm-hmm. And then we're once again one game away from a grand final, um, which sort of been, was the theme on the back end of my career. Was, we were so close to getting there again, didn't quite make it. And the cool thing about that last year, I think come Christmas, not even like even past that, I think it was probably four weeks to go in the season, we were bottom of the ladder. Oh, <laughs> we made it. We, the season was that close. We, Finish the season second on the ladder. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We just had this run at the end and then we run into Bryce Cotton and the Wildcats. Mm-hmm. That was it. That was my career. We were, we were, we were done out in two. Uh, got to finish my career in Perth, which was mm-hmm. uh, symbolic as well. Obviously, being my home state, I still believe mm-hmm. I've got the best farewell send-off that any players ever got. Adelaide gave me a great farewell in mm-hmm. the final regular season game in Adelaide, which was a really nice tribute. And then um, to have the RSC Arena basically standing and cheering me off as I walked off the court for the last time, it doesn't get much better than that. And, um, really grateful for Adelaide for what they did, really grateful for Perth and what they did. Um, it was a it was a really uh, nice tribute by both of those clubs to to give me that sort of send off um, that I didn't have in a home game in Cairns. I want to go back to on January the thirteenth, uh, two thousand sixteen. You played your three hundredth uh, NBL game. What does that mean to you to you know be in the history books of the NBL to you know get three hundred games? Yeah, pretty wild to tell you the truth, and. Um, yeah, I, I look back on my career and um, if you were to ask me as a kid, you know, what what do you want to do in the NBL? I, if I played one game, I would have um, been a kid from an under-16 team and then state team. <laughs> and the fact that my journey took me that far into my career and I was able to play 300 games um, and was one of the better players in the comp during those 300 games. Um, mm-hmm. I look back on it as a really proud accomplishment that I was able to do that, sort of open up the, the doors for country kids in WA to see that that was a real path that you could take, mm-hmm. whether that was, you know, Cam Glidden, who's from Bunbury as well, that came and did the same sort of thing now in mm-hmm. his career. Um, yeah, I look back on it. And, Really proud of my efforts, quite proud of the journey that it takes to play 300. That's a bit of longevity in there as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I got to win a championship at the end of the day, which is what the real reason that you play. And that's the only thing that really matters is that I actually got that championship. 
along the way in my career and I was able to do that as captain of the club as well. So how did you make the decision to retire? <laughs> Basically, I, I, I couldn't. After a second shoulder reconstruction, there was no chance yeah. in that I was going to get up. I was probably going to miss a fair chunk of the following season. And I'd already said to myself during pre-season, I actually didn't mind running at that stage, but that last pre-season just sucked. And mm -hmm. I, I knew I knew if I wasn't willing to put in the work in the off-season, then I wasn't going to put out a shell of myself in, in the regular season. And while I was still playing good basketball and, you know, I got to walk away on my terms, which not every mm -hmm. day gets, uh, I got to walk away still playing pretty good basketball at the end of my career, even with a, a busted everything in my shoulder, I was still being productive for my team. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be the guy that was all of a sudden coming off the bench, mm -hmm. you know, play five, 10 minutes a game, just holding on to any sort of relevance of being a basketball player. Um, I think I wanted to respect the game a little bit more than that and walk mm -hmm. out with my head held high, knowing that I'd given everything body-wise to, to the game and um, the game had given so much to me as well. So your 335th and last game against the Perth Wildcats and Bryce Cotton in a game two semi-final loss. Um, what was the farewell like at RIC Arena? Best, best that there ever was, mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I don't think in any, any other NBL player's got a better send-off to this point, uh, which says a lot. Um, and it's funny, you don't think of those thoughts, but as the clock wound down um, and I knew that was it, mm -hmm. that was, that was going to be the last time and sort of, before the game, there's a really cool photo um, during warm-ups and I just went and sat down and I sat down because I wanted to soak it all in, mm -hmm. knowing, that it, knowing that I wasn't going to play again in Perth, uh, knowing that that's probably the best crowd you can play in front of. Yeah. <laughs> soak it all in and then um, you don't care of the reaction of the crowd afterwards. I knew there was going to be some reaction. I didn't expect it to be as good as what it was. And um, very grateful for the 11,500 people that were there. Um, I'm grateful for the Wildcats organization and how they treated the moment um, and to walk off in your home state with a lot of family and friends in the crowd um, was really cool. I one of, or if not, uh, two of your boys might be following in your footsteps um, in basketball, in if not football. Yeah, they both love their basketball, um, and they don't mind football. And uh, it's you know, obviously basketball wise, they love their NBA and they're, they're really mm -hmm. into their, their hoops. They love it. Uh, football wise, they've always had a bit of a fascination with football, and my current partner is an AFLW player. She's a vice captain on the West Coast. And so yeah. he likes to have the football conversations and I, and I try and stay in my lane with the basketball conversation. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, I'm happy with whatever they choose to do. Uh, I just mm -hmm. want them to be happy. Um, I know it's tough when you try and follow a parent um, who's good at something and very rarely does that pan out well. Um, mm -hmm of the expectations that not necessarily that they put on themselves, but 
I think other parents and people, coaches put expectations on kids as well. Um, mm -hmm. I just want Taz and Axel to have fun at the end mm -hmm. of the day and whatever their journey takes them, they're still they're 12 and 10, they're still mm -hmm. young. Um, I didn't really get into it seriously till a bit later on. Um, so I, I just want them to enjoy for now, enjoy playing with their mates, enjoy the moment. When the time comes to make a decision, choose whatever they want and just be happy with their decision. Um, so I think I heard and saw you were in, you took them to uh, the state champs. What was that like? Oh, well, yeah, they, 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 they live in Queensland and so uh, that's always good, taking them to state champs and mm -hmm. I just enjoy watching them play. And, getting them around their teammates. They're both really good teammates. Um, uh, a huge sense of pride anytime I get to watch them play. and um, mm -hmm. yeah, They can't do any wrong in my eyes, which makes me a typical parent, basically, at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. we, we think our kids can do no wrong and they're the greatest. And I don't think any different of mine. I think they're the, they're the best. And um, I just love their attitude and the way that they go about things. You mentioned your partner being a vice captain of the West Coast Eagles AFLW team. What's that like to, you know, have her who's on the footy side of things and then you on the basketball side? I keep telling her she's the second best athlete in the house, but um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's the case. No, she's a, she's a pro's pro uh, and very good at what she does and um, pretty highly regarded in, in the women's football system or just football in general. Mm -hmm. um and she uh she's definitely more professional than i ever was as a professional <laughs> athlete and um she's got quite a number of years left in her career and just going to enjoy her seasons um which kicks off here pretty soon i think that's a season number six for her and wow uh, yeah she's uh she's very inspirational and she's she's been um it's, it's actually been really nice uh being the person supporting, not uh, being person being supported. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which is a, which is a different role for me, um, uh, and sort of know when to talk to her about stuff and when to leave stuff alone because mm -hmm. having been in those that seat before, it's, it's it's a fine line between wanting to share what's happening in your life and mm -hmm. um, wanting people just to to listen and. Um, sort of go with the listen first attitude until she asks for my opinion on something yeah. and how to deal with something, having probably been in those positions before as a leader. Um, now, the rumour file is the West Coast Eagles uh, wanted you to have a trial. Uh, is that right? Yeah. So after the London Olympics, I was 29 and West Coast blew me over and I actually had a tryout with West Coast. Wow. At 29 at that stage, it's pretty hard to make the changeover, especially they mm -hmm. say it's, you know, a good two, three years for someone to fully uh, cross codes. And I don't think it's necessarily that because we've seen many a player do that, whether that's Jack Madgen, who was my mm -hmm. old teammate at the Taipans, who's done really well yeah, with uh, Collingwood or Hugh Greenwood. You know, he's been exceptional in his role uh, now with North Melbourne. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, it, it was it was fun. It was I enjoyed it, uh, but at the at the end of the day, um, probably a little bit too old to try and uh, go to football. And plus, Dana would tell I'm probably too soft to play football. <laughs> I'll stick to basketball, I reckon. Uh, what's your best advice um, to anyone who wants to be successful 
uh, professional basketball or like yourself? Well, I don't think this has got anything to do with basketball, but just life in general. And it's um, it's easy to put in the work when someone's watching. It's the work that you do when no one's watching and yeah. what type of work it is. And so for me, um, I'd always pride myself on the extra work that wasn't around the group mm -hmm. um, or wasn't around the team. Um, you've got to be able to go the extra mile, I guess. And so that's one part of it. And the second part is choose your, your circle of friends of your, your influence mm -hmm. really carefully. Um, and so it's easy to get carried away when you're a professional, but I think, you know, whether it's playing sports or life in general, the circle of influence that you carry around you carries a lot of weight. And I know you had uh, the great guru, uh, Mark Sainsbury on the other day and yeah. <laughs> talking about our group. So yeah. That, that's the circle of influence, you know, that you sort of have, whether mm -hmm. it is Guru or, or Chris Anstey, you know, Andrew Parkinson, mm -hmm. like those, those guys uh, I trust uh, mm -hmm. with everything. Um, and that's what that's, uh, Luke Kendall. He's another one, obviously, someone yeah. who shared my journey from college all the way to now. Um, really cool to have people like that in your life. And, you know, mm -hmm. they always say, we live in an era where everyone's got friends on Facebook. So I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. look, I've got, you know, a couple hundred friends, a couple thousand friends. Mm -hmm. but who, who are your absolute close friends that would do anything for you? And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm lucky that I have a handful of guys that I know that I could call it a drop of a hat that would do anything for me and vice mm -hmm. versa. So work hard when no one's watching and choose your circle of influence carefully because uh, they will be the people that will guide you on the right direction. What's it been like to know Andrew Parkinson and then see the sort of tough time, you know, he's been going through and how he's recovered? Yeah, so I guess my story with Parky is a little bit different to other. I didn't play with Parky. Obviously, mm -hmm. he's a bit older than me. Um, but then when he got his uh, cancer uh, diagnosed, it actually coincided with my dad getting cancer. Wow. And so Parky, Parky and I were becoming friends and mates um, but then I got him in contact with my dad and then they've become really close mates mm -hmm. because um, as much as Parky or dad would want to tell me what's going on with them and all that it's hard for us to probably comprehend because we're not actually going through it but here's two guys that are going through the same thing at the same time mm -hmm. and so I think they talk to each other like three or four times a week now wow. text message or phone calls just to check in on each other mm -hmm. um, so I guess my bond with Parky has galvanised even further, knowing that he's going through the same thing as my dad's going through. And now that we've created a bond between him and my dad, mm -hmm. that is, you know, thick as thieves, um, it's pretty special. Uh, thanks, Willow, for coming on today and putting aside, you know, 40 minutes or so of your time to come on and have a chat. It's been an absolute honour. Thanks, Max. Keep up the good work, all right? Yeah, I will, definitely. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Willow. Stay tuned, everyone, for more Sporting Max. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sporting Max. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube, and be sure to follow our socials. This episode is brought to you by The Missing Link. This is the voice of Melbourne, and we'll see you back here real soon for another episode of Sporting Max.